Okay, welcome to the long-awaited Witch and a Buddhist Walk into a Bar episode five. Five. I'm not confident about that number, but I think that's right. Okay. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. We're drinking. Cheers. La Vielle Ferme, which has two chickens on it. So we're pretty sure it just means the two chickens in in French. French. Yeah. Also, not confident about that. We're here today with our friend Tommy Starchild, who is a fascinating person and is going to have lots of fascinating things to talk to us about. And so, Tommy, what I don't even know how to introduce you. You do so much. <laughs> would you say he? I would say that you're a. a would you identify as a, a? You're a witch. You're a seer. You're a conjurer. Conjurer. <laughs> All those work? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know even know how to start this. Let's get into okay, it, I guess. So <laughs> let's start by by getting to know you. Okay. So tell us what you can. Start from the beginning. Give us. Give it to us. <laughs> Just give it to Just us. Just give it to <laughs> us. <laughs> well, let's start with, what. where did your spiritual journey start? Well, I was born a coal miner's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a bio written somewhere that does start off that way. I like that very much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. <laughs> and and then there was a, something, rumor had it, there was a, a man involved because I was adopted. So I made up this crazy, crazy <laughs> mythos of, of my beginning. I lost that bio somewhere. But I was adopted, and I was adopted into... Uh, my family, um, the pastor of my parents' church, arranged for that adoption. Uh, we were raised Baptist, and early on, I was um, very into like Old Testament theology, and went to a Baptist private school and would discuss Old Testament theology with adults and stuff. But later on in my adult, uh, well, my uh, mid-teens, um, kind of got disillusioned um, from the Baptist church and left, but still had that interest. There was still something that was calling to me. Um, had a, an, as a child, I would have prophetic dreams and I would see things and um, spirits would wake me up at night and all kinds of rather unusual stuff that would happen and that kind of stuck with me. Uh, so, just uh, sorry to interrupt you, but in the context of the Baptist church you were in, how did they handle you having these kinds of dreams and visions and knowing things before they would happen. and I didn't tell them. Oh, well, that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did try to learn reality the way they said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not going to be conducive to my life to try to explain. Because these started at a very young age. I really didn't even know how to explain them. Mm-hmm. It was... It was an extremely common for me to have reoccurring dreams. I kind of had a set of, I think it was like four, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, two of which I, I still remember quite clearly. Can you tell us uh, about one of them, if it's not too personal? Um, these two were kind of co-related, um, because it was the, the two sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side, and it, it also demonstrates kind of my how I felt about the two sides of the family. Um I grew up with woods behind our house, and in this particular dream, there would be the line, like a, a line, a single file line of cousins, uh, uh, and I was at the back of the line, 
and my grandfather would be at the head of the line and we're all walking through the the, the woods and this next to this nice flower garden and everything is pretty and perfect and we're all walking in single file um following my my grandfather and then i just kind of rise up and fly over everyone mm. and am flying above them and feeling um a distance feeling a separation um a uh, a uniqueness but not necessarily in a comforting kind of way and mm. uh, kind of an isolated sort of way and uh the one with my mom's side of the family i would would start off in my bedroom and all my mom's siblings would be over with all their kids and so I opened my bedroom door and it was just shoulder to shoulder like you know people back to back filling the entire house that I couldn't even get out of my bedroom door and so I fly up over their heads and I'm floating over them but it was the same sensation of that feeling um want not noticed feeling distant feeling um different and uh unique and it became apparent to me later on as an, an adult kind of what that was but i had one dream this one wasn't a reoccurring one um but it was one very profound dream i was still incredibly young so sex was not something i really knew anything about but this dream, I was in a hotel, and it was, it was very aware that this was my honeymoon night. It was a big suite. And I don't even think I like visually had an experience of, uh, of what a hotel large honeymoon suite would look like. Um, but my wife was in the bed far away from like the bathroom door and waiting for me to, to come out of the bathroom. The bathroom door is open, and I'm in the bathroom getting ready. Like How whatever. old were you in this during when you had this? Dream? I was an adult in the dream, but I was probably probably around um, second or third grade. Oh, oh wow. okay. Yeah, so really young. Um, and getting like I, I know now what the getting ready was. I was probably doing my hair or something. Um, <laughs> And I look over across this big hotel room to, and see her sitting in the bed. And then I turn around and there's a man in the bathtub taking a bath. And I remember looking back at her, looking over at him, and kind of look back. And then I just closed the bathroom door and got in the bath and then I woke up. Uh-huh. Well, that's for, like some foreshadowing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and again, too young to really contextualize, but it stuck. Like, I could still see the dream just describing it. And so those those dreams of flying over and, and feeling distant from my family also, uh, for me, became um, this sort of aha, this identifier that um, not only being gay, but also being unique um, spiritually from uh, the majority of my family. That's really fascinating. So I haven't told that story publicly. Oh, well, I hope, that, I hope, that, I hope you don't want <laughs> yeah. to tell it. Oh, no. That's, Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank sure. you. So you have this kind of feeling of differentness, and then you grew to a certain age. So can you talk to us a little bit about what your church was like, like what it was like to grow oh, up Lord. in? Oh, Lord. 
<laughs> like what, oh because, lord because you hear baptist church and there's all kinds of baptist church yeah so what, we were what was yours? we were technically northern baptist although my parents were southern southern folks my dad was from tennessee my mom from kentucky uh, so it was a southern household um but they didn't really have southern baptist churches um in michigan outside of detroit where i grew up and I don't know, growing up, it was kind of a normal church of what I thought a normal church was. Um, I, one of, I know one of our pastors, one that I kind of remembered for a period of time, um, left the church um, to go drive a truck. Um, I, I thought that was odd, that a man of God would leave being a preacher and go be a truck driver. Um Otherwise, like, the church seemed very normal, and then some of those kinds of things, we would change pastors, and I didn't really understand why. Um, the pastor that arranged for the adoption, I think he transitioned out, in, like, to another church fairly early on. I don't really remember him uh, as a pastor, but we were... We did the Sunday morning services and the Sunday evening service and the Wednesday service. And then if there were things for the kids on the weekends, then we did those also. If there was a thing for kids on the weekends that the church was doing, then if we were going to do anything on the weekends, then that was what we had to do. If there was nothing happening, then we could have the option, possibly, to do stuff with friends. Um, but it was, it was all very church-related, everything. Uh, and I didn't know... Um, that that was not normal mm. uh, as far as every single person's experience of that what your life would be very much like involved very involved in the church um, being acculturated to view the world through that particular lens I didn't understand that other people uh, could view the world through a different lens, <laughs> mm. through different teachings. I thought, you know, this was normal. And, and of course, you know, Baptist is, you know, the one true religion. And, oh, and they're the only ones yes. that are going to go to heaven. And everyone else are, are sinners. And, Even other Christians, right? Uh, well, yeah. only if they're Baptist, then yeah. that qualifies. And if they're Catholics, clearly they're not oh, Christian. Yeah. Catholics are they're idol worshippers. Yeah, they're, they're idol worshippers, yeah. and they're going to hell. They just don't know it. Bless their heart. <laughs> Bless their heart. <laughs> so it was very interesting. And as I was still kind of young... Um, maybe not quite a teenager. Um, I do remember taking communion. And they always say the, the, the last pew in the back of the church for our family because we had a tendency to run late mm. all the time. <laughs> so they would just save the last pew so we could sneak in and sit down. And so when we take communion, I would have the view of the whole congregation. And I started noticing that the women would take their little tiny, you know, just slightly larger uh -huh. than a thimble of grape juice, because we're Baptist, <laughs> and, and drink it. And then I would see the men throw it back like a shot. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know that that's what... The, I asked my mom uh, one time, like, what that was, and she's like, well, you know, a lot of the women were in the church before their husbands, and their husbands had alcohol issues, <laughs> and eventually came to the church uh -huh. to to get sober, 
but here they are with their grape juice and still with this old habit of doing shots and tossing this grape juice back like it was a shot. That's funny. And that was... That said something to me (laughs) at that age. Like, hmm. So, these adults get to live their life and then decide later in life that they want to, like, straighten it up. But us kids didn't have a choice to live life that here we were sort of thrown into this whether we liked it or not Mm. and and so it was an unusual observation at a a young age was that the one that kind of started to shake you or what was the what was that moment you talked about where you were disillusioned oh Mm. so so for anyone that's that ever hears this, I'm like a screaming queen <laughs> with dreads and tattoos. Like so, imagine me at a moral majority convention. I didn't look this way then, but still, me at a moral majority convention in the '80s in Washington D.C. with Ronald Reagan as the final keynote speaker. Oh my goodness! Like I'm having a very difficult time imagining. Yeah, that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed now. Oh well, don't be embarrassed. You know, Tim. Tim told his story, and he was he he was very devout at one point yeah. too. My this was when Reagan was coming out to speak. That was the one time my dad and I, and I never thought about until recent last few years. He never took my sister, and I don't rem, I don't remember any of the other people from church that went bringing their wives or taking daughters or anything. I just remember the men. So there's some misogyny for you. Uh, so my dad took me. I was actually in between I, like things. I was watching La Caja Faux on <laughs> on the television um, in the hotel and telling my dad I was watching it to practice my French for school. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what the hell they were saying. I was just watching the drag. <laughs> and so this night Reagan is, is coming to speak my dad um, wanted to be as close to Reagan as possible so we sat down on the floor away from our church and so as the Reagan is coming out there was a protester which I'm pretty sure was act up it was in those days that just stood up and held a sign and this is way up in the bleacher seats literally up next to the ceiling and so he just stood up and held a sign and all the TV cameras and news cameras swing around to catch this protester. And when they do, what I saw on the news after was the pastor of our church, who I really looked up to, this particular one, I really was inspired by his teachings and really felt that he was a really good man and a really good teacher. And he was beating this guy into the ground. Oh my God. Wow. At that point, I think I was probably 16, maybe 17. Um, and well studied in school, um, well studied in church, and uh, enough to know that this this is in stark contrast uh, to everything that he's been teaching, and it, I just couldn't contextualize um, the a, a reason for that. There's no explanation for for that behavior, and that sort of toppled things for me. Wow. Uh, and I've learned recently um, by seeing a, a live theatrical production of a play called, um, I think it was This Beautiful City, 
um, extremely triggering <laughs> about um, Springfield, uh, Colorado, where the the rise of the evangelical movement uh, and Ted Haggard, and um, mm. and it was done. The play is put together by interviews <clears throat> of people um, from the town. Wow. And and so it's it's a it's a playwright activist group that do these interviews, and then they just take the interviews, and basically they're just delivering the all all the dialogue yeah. comes straight from the interviews, um, and it was very triggering to see, in with some distance now, the indoctrination and mm-hmm. the brainwashing techniques and all of these things that were so normal in growing up and and now being able to see um, from a different perspective, but getting very triggered and um, then remembering the, this, the story with the pastor and trying to process after and realizing that I developed um, a, um, a high um, regard or ethic around um, spiritual integrity. That moment for at you. At that moment. Really it, it was that. Yeah, it was very pivotal for me and, and very, uh, very much sealed that in. And it's something that I find myself... Um, I, I can get really um, fired up around seeing um, spiritual people, in, especially in roles of teachers, um, that don't uh, demonstrate spiritual integrity. Because you, you are responsible for other people. And, and if you're not living what you're teaching, then what's the point? Mm. You know, when life gets rough, um, that's when we dip into the grace of our spiritual practice, hopefully. And really see uh, the point and purpose of it. It's easy to be witchy when life is easy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, when life depends on it, it becomes challenging to light your candles when you really have to put it to the test. And uh, and so I really that that moment sealed something for me. Mm. That's really powerful. What do you think, Tim? You have anything to uh, add to that? I one thing I was gonna say is. I remember back in my, when I was a kid in church, and one of the big teachings was, you know, you either accept Jesus or you go to hell, and Mm -hmm. hell was always made a big deal. And I remember one day talking to my pastor, this was not Kendall, this was before I ever moved here. The famous Kendall. (laughs) Yeah, uh, my old, my pastor when I was a kid, we, I, I, I was so confused because I had a lot of family and friends that were Jewish, and I said, well, what what about the Jews that don't, you know, accept Jesus as the Messiah? They go to hell? Like, I literally asked this, and I was, I don't know, probably younger than 10 years old, and he, he flat out said yes. Mm-hmm. He just said, "Well, you either accept Jesus or that's your fate." And hell was like yeah. drawn in this detailed fire. It was like what you picture hell. That's mm-hmm. what they classic hell. How they <laughs> talked about it in church. Yeah. Yeah, they had those little booklets. Yeah. Those, oh, those, tracks. Those tracks. Those yeah, little we stories and things at the church at my yeah. childhood church. We get those in our bathroom sometimes. Not at Kendall's <laughs> church, but at my childhood church yeah. growing up. We we had those tracks like yeah, accept Jesus or go to mm-hmm. hell, and then like 
demons and Satan was worse. They were so happy if you didn't believe in God, and and then yeah. God, and, yeah. then, and then like there was always this one friend who in there who was just like, you must accept Jesus, and the person's like, no, that's all dumb. And oh, I, I remember reading ones about evolution. It's so funny. Oh my god. Anyway, it's hilarious. They in also, retrospect, they also had the. Um, but in, the, yeah, the movies, in retrospect. <laughs> The rapture movies. Yeah. Uh, where all these vehicles go crashing into each other because the drivers uh, and love those. have, have <laughs> yeah. vanished. No, we freaking love those movies. Um, we watch those on purpose. <laughs> by age six. I thought it was seven. Oh, the rapture. Um, but I, I looked at my old Bible and I have written in there, when I became a born-again Christian, which cannot be undone, so that's probably my safety net for being a witch. It's like, mm -hmm. ha, 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 you can't undo being a born-again Christian. Uh, I think there's, like, there's, there's this one... Uh, <laughs> like that. So you get your ace in the hole. Right. Just in case. I just guess that case. is a Baptist thing. I think totally it's kind a, of a Baptist thing. Yeah, you can't undo that. Yeah. It's so funny. But isn't there, like, a... There's, like, the unforgivable sin of, of, of uh, blasphemy or something that... Yeah, that's the biggest... Yeah, Blas but Blaspheming they, the, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 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 I don't think you've ever done I've that. I've never done that. Yeah, we're good. No. No, I, no, I, I almost carried the Holy Spirit. Once. That was a little trippy. Ooh, um, but by age six, they had terrified me into becoming born again. And I remember the terror. I remember the, the pastor of our church interviewing me, oh. interviewing my parents. Um, and they, he thought that I was way too young to be making such an informed choice. I remember being terrified. And by all means, whatever happened, I had to have that happen. I had to get born again, like, and and then had to be baptized because we're living in the last days. God's coming any minute, and my parents and my sister are gonna disappear, and I didn't know how to drive the truck. Oh, yeah. that's so sad. <laughs> you see that? You see? Have you seen those bumper stickers that are like, in case of rapture? <laughs> Uh, you know, something cars like, yours or something. Yes. I don't know. Like. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have seen those. So you you had this aha moment, and mm -hmm. then I assume you stepped away from Christianity, or at least the church. Yeah, because that was followed with my sister getting pregnant, um, which is a whole other... Uh, that's her story to tell, but it was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> she She wanted to prove to my parents that they couldn't tell her what to do, so... She got pregnant. So she changed her lifestyle. So, uh, yeah, so she got pregnant. Um, and then she at least knew that um, she wasn't going to make uh, take a bad situation and make it worse by marrying the father because she knew she didn't love the father. But that she was that just, wasn't the point. No, she was just being rebellious. Right. Um, and so the church, start, they turned their back on our family because she was pregnant and not going to marry the father. Um, although there was another teenager about her, the same age as my sister who had run away from home and was had gotten very strung out on drugs, had gotten pregnant. Their family had her get an abortion. Um, they got her on lithium, and they paraded her in front of the church. And she, it was the first time I'd ever seen the lithium shuffle. Uh, and she shuffled in front of the church, and, and the pastor telling the congregation not to judge her family and, and everything and that she's come back to God and, you know, oh, like, gosh. you know, making everything right. Um, my sister chose to keep the baby because she was also adopted. So she wanted to, um, to keep the baby. Um, and, but she wasn't going to marry the, 
the father and, and make it all worse. And so they turn their back on our family. Um, but this other situation, at the same exact time, they treated their, their family very, very different. Uh, and so the, the inconsistencies, and I was old enough to go like, you know, clearly there's, there's no integrity here. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so our whole family stepped away, which was very unusual. Um, and that was uh, shortly after that I graduated from high school in 86 and moved to Phoenix um, immediately after turning 18 um, and still considered myself to be uh, a Christian. I just didn't know where my spiritual life was going to go. Mm, um, I knew I wasn't going to join another church because I wasn't going to sit under the teachings of another person and, and be misguided again. I really felt that I had gotten misguided and that my relationship with God was important and, and valid, and I just didn't know where I was going to go to to further that. So, what? So, that you you where you started out and where you are now is an enormous difference. <laughs> so, what was the next step from going from being sort of still Christian but not really practicing any like not like being exactly a practicing Christian and leading you to I believe the craft was your first step into a different spirituality is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um the church always warned that you know you're going to end up in a cult not to, to me directly but you know that that's the the mm. in general threat yeah. to everyone <laughs> they're obsessed um, with cults. Yeah, you know it was it was <laughs> the, the satanic Yeah, ironic, right? <laughs> the satanic panic of the 80s and so you're going to end up in a cult and so uh, there were periods of time I wasn't going to be leading a cult. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there was a period of time where I'm like, they're right. I ended up in a cult. Uh, but my first boyfriend was the first person to ever refer to me as a white witch. And I thought it was some sort of D&D &D thing. Um, <laughs> but he was recognizing things, odd things happening. Um, he would see them more often than I would. But I think part of that was because it had become kind of my norm. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really noticing, and, and it was not his norm. And so he was really taking note of that. And we broke up, and it was... And I was like 18, 19 at that time. And so by the time I was in my early 20s, I got up the, uh, some enough nerve to try to study or get books on witchcraft and I'd asked my partner at the time or I said that I kind of think I want to do this and he's like I don't believe in any of that hocus pocus bullshit so you know you do whatever you want I just don't want to see it so quickly to just to ask because this is something that I think people might be interested I mean everybody's everybody's story is going to be different but, like, what was it about witchcraft that kind of called to you, do you think? Like, what did you feel when you were, when you heard being called, like, a white witch? What about that opened up that mystery, that curiosity for you? Well, that, whoops, that story goes back even further. And I only recently remembered this part. Um, so Orion Foxwood um, had talked about um, the first time a witch, someone that was born um, with the blood um, comes in contact with their first witch and it wakes that blood up mm. and something happens 
And that person often doesn't become your first teacher. If they do, it often doesn't um, last. It usually ends kind of not so great. Um, but it, it's they're there to wake something up. And I was like, oh, that you know, wasn't really my story. And then I remembered in, I think it was 80, um, 85, I think, uh, our, the public school. So I did my junior and senior year in the public school. And they had invited for Halloween uh, a woman to come and speak as a historian who was a self-identified witch. And her name was Gundella. Gundella the Green Witch. I like uh, that. <laughs> of, of, of Michigan. Um, and I'd forgotten all about her. Mm. And then when I read that with, with Dominic, suddenly I was like, wait a minute. I remember being, we had to get notes signed by our parents to go see her. There were protesters. So you can Google. That's how I found her name. Um, it was a big deal, the protesters and all this stuff. Right. And I didn't get my parents to sign the note because there was no way that was going to happen. I defied my best friend. Somehow I made it in to her talk. I don't <laughs> know how. I was compelled to, to see her. Which is fascinating. I, I needed to see her. You weren't afraid to. You just yeah. knew you needed to I knew to I needed to see her. And I was fascinated. And I wanted to get near her. And I don't even remember what she... She was there to talk really history. American history. So it was nothing really having anything to do with witchcraft. Um, but of course, people were asking questions about some of the stuff that she w was wearing because she wore a big, you know, long black dress and had this big, giant pendant of a spider. And she's like, I just like spiders. <laughs> that, that was her answer on that. Um, but I wanted to get near. There was something that, that compelled me to defy everybody I knew and get there. Uh, and then I thought that was kind of the end of it. Um, but when I got my, my first book, again, there was some sort of um, draw uh, to something um, magical and natural. Mm. So the, the first book was Scott Cunningham's uh, Earth, Air, Fire, and Water. Mm. So I didn't even do like a, you know, a Wicca 101 book first. Because I thought, well, you know, I don't know if that's what I want. But I wanted something about um, that. Something about um, like the nature, the, and, the nature yeah. and connecting with nature and elements, and it's something that just spoke to me. I didn't, you know, I couldn't say that I knew what the spell work or elemental work was, but I was drawn, and I was drawn to him in particular, and somehow could hear um, a familiar voice, mm. um, and just knew somehow that he was was gay, and I could just feel that in his writing. I found out years later that he was, um, and and which was awesome, kind of confirmed. But I could hear it in his voice, and there was something familiar. And I figured if I'm going to venture down this road, I was not going to have a teacher. If I was going to be misguided, I was going to misguide myself. Thank you very much. And, <laughs> and, which we and, all do. Yeah, mm -hmm. so point. I, I mm -hmm. embarked on um, these books because a, a co-worker's like, you know, just get whatever speaks to you, whatever jumps off the shelf. And so I decided to follow that advice. And it kept leading me back to more of his books. And I would read a little and do a lot. And read a little and do a lot. And, um, and it was very experiential. Uh, because I was working with a whole different um, information set. Mm -hmm. Like 
so here was the information I was getting from the books, but what did that mean in practice? So, you know, calling a quarter, calling an element, go, I'd go up my backyard and, and say it all in my head because there was nobody else there with me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't need to speak out loud. And, you know, if the elements are big enough, to, they can hear my head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I would, I would do a call and stand there and wait until I felt something. And I wouldn't go on to the next one until I felt something. Mm. But then I would go back and do it again and see if I felt the same thing. And, and then I would do the next one. Yeah. For like just being solo, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of building up uh, what I would later, you know, would call now like body memory. Mm. was building up um, a, a new relationship and taking in the information and then testing that information to see if I, if I get it again and, um, and keep trying to work with that. Um, and this was before I had began, begun to really acknowledge uh, the fairy companions that I was born with. Um, that I had always kind of known were there. I had never really said anything about them. Um, I kind of knew that they knew that I knew that they were there. Um, but just kind of thought it was a bit freaky. Now, before we continue, because that's a pretty big bombshell for people mm-hmm. who are listening to this who don't know anything about anything. Right, I was going to have to loop back on that one. Fairy companions. So when you <laughs> say fairy, when, when most people in America hear the word fairy, they're thinking about these little happy people dressed in buttercups that are dancing around in like a mushroom field <laughs> with little wings. And traditionally and historically, the word fairy did not mean that back in the old right country i guess the old country (laughs) right it meant a variety of things so how would you personally define what a fairy is in um i think more a fairy companion (laughs) (laughs) i think more importantly is how would i describe um sims my fairy companions Mm -hmm. i think um and in early on i would ask them like so are you this and they would say yes i'm like well are you this and they'd say yes i got to aliens i'm like are you aliens they would say yes and so I finally realized that they didn't care <laughs> mm. what I thought they were. Um, but they've always presented as four. Um, usually um, um, uh, two males and two females. Um, two in front and two behind them. Um, but they're basically from their torsos down would just sort of join in, in kind of light. Oh, fascinating. Um, and so they were very much kind of light beings that, rose up out of this light in, in some sort of um, visible sort of humanoid kind of uh, shape. Uh, usually one would talk at, at, at you know, a single time. Uh, on occasion, two would talk at the same time, which was very challenging to listen to, and I would try to get, you know, one speaking. But they're, they're a group that, that function as a single... Um, yet they're also a hosting. So behind the four are hundreds, uh, a hosting uh, of beings. And so they're sort of the um, meeting place, uh, for lack of a better term, for the hosting of beings and beings of light or shining ones, um, as I like to refer to it, um, made of plasmic light. Um, so huge. Um, they once told me um, to give a perspective of how long they've been around. They said they were here at the time in which the earth was molten, and they helped soothe the mother 
to calm her anger, to calm her rage, so that she could cool and bring forth life. Hmm. Wow. So we're talking, when we're talking fairies or fae or whatever, big, powerful, spiritual beings, not teacup dancers. Right, <laughs> right. And, and um, I think it would be hard to find anything written on this time in Earth's history, but the time in which the Earth, before the Earth had cooled, when it was molten, um, was a time when these plasmic beings, these, these fairy beings, um, ruled and reigned mm. on the Earth. Um, these beings of, of plasmic light, plasmic energy. So that's like a, like a, a huge step from Christianity already. Big step. <laughs> I was going to say, the Bible doesn't Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's my kind of personal gnosis from... The, um, the visions and, and uh, information that they've right. passed. And just for anybody who's listening who's unaware, like, I don't know, there's no way to, like, exactly, like, you know, some people are going to hear this and be like, oh, well, he's just a schizophrenic. And the thing <laughs> is, whether or not that's true, the biggest question is whether or not it's useful and whether or not right. what they're telling you helps is helping or is is coming true. Right. And I think that's, for me, anyway, is the big determiner if somebody is hearing a spiritual force versus if somebody is hearing, like, a sock puppet in their own brain. <laughs> if right. If that force right. knows things that you couldn't have known or right. gives you advice that helps you in some way, then that's the important part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, are the voices telling you to harm yourself or others? Are they denigrating you? Are they tearing you down? Are they, they um, uh, destructive towards self? Um, these are more common signs of psychosis. Um, are the voices telling you um, pieces of wisdom that um, you didn't have access to um, that open up things in your life as far as maybe opening up doorways or pathways or things coming to you such as, you know, sort of your life sort of falling into place. Um, uh, sometimes your life crumbling, but crumbling for something better and new. Um, and so are they helping? Are they leading you in a growth direction? Versus a destructive. Uh, versus a dis destructive. Uh, so it's more common uh, in, with uh, the expression of something that's a psychosis is that they're, they're um, self-destructive or they're destructive to, towards self. Right. And obviously that was not the case with Sims. Right, that was not the case uh, with Sims. And um, when I first started reading these books, I still was very quiet about their presence in my life and finally started mentioning them. And I just referred to them as my entourage. And there was one <laughs> night uh, in a bar, it was a piano bar in Phoenix that the had a back door the front door was off to the side so the entry like pattern was l-shaped but because you could enter through both doors there was no actual flow of, of traffic and i social anxiety is kind of a thing uh, especially where it's crowded space i don't like crowded spaces and this bar was notorious for being crowded everyone would just cram into the center and there was no movement uh, and it was a small bar so I hated that bar. I hated going in there, but we would go there often. 
<laughs> and yeah, so there's a place like that around here. Yeah. We hate going, but somehow yeah, but some you end up there. <laughs> I hate it. And so this part- <laughs> this particular night, I decided. Well, all right, if you're real, I'm gonna put you to the test. So I had told my entourage, two of you in front of me, two of you behind me, and we're gonna walk through this bar. And I just enter the back door and I start walking through the bar. And I'm watching people in front of me part where I know that Sims are standing in front of oh, me. Interesting. And I look over my shoulder and I watch the crowd just naturally reconvene behind me where I know that Sims are standing behind me. Oh, interesting. And so my heart starts pounding and I keep walking. And I'm watching this through the entire bar until I walk out the front door and I get out the front door. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like unheard of. <laughs> like they weren't bumping into you. They, they, weren't, they weren't paying any attention to me. I wasn't saying excuse me, nothing. Fascinating. They were just just automatically moving. They were aware of something. Unconsciously. And, and weren't even turning toward it, just stepping aside and then regathering behind me back into their little conversation clutch. So it was like a, it was a spiritual experiment. Totally a spiritual experiment that freaked the <laughs> hell out of me. I was going to say fuck, but I don't know if I could say you that on your podcast. You can say fuck on our show. I like how you said it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> so it freaked the fuck out of me. And I, was, was like, I don't even I was think I went back in the bar. This one. <laughs> so part of the reason that I know you is because we have the same teacher in the craft. Yes. A specific lineage in, or a specific tradition in the craft. So you're working by yourself. You're right. working with your sims. What led you to want to delve into a, a tradition? Like a, when you were kind of very dead set that you're like, that you didn't want to be under a teacher again. Well, I I felt that I had kind of plateaued. So I'd moved from Phoenix to San Diego. Um, I um, decided I was in an abusive relationship and um, left that, had to leave the state to stay out of it. Mm. Um, Drugs were involved in my life, but I decided, like, I'm the hell with it. Everybody else has had a time in their life to be irresponsible. I didn't have that as a kid. And I was like, screw it, I'm going to take a year off. Mm-hmm. And, and I scheduled my, my year of irresponsibility. And um, just kind of let things go down as far as, as, as they could go. Um, it was an experiment in um, being like a lost boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and after your rigid upbringing, it was probably a, like a way to be like, to kind of almost burn those last remnants in a way. Right. right? And just a prodigal son. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when I, shortly after I had picked up my first book, I had felt um, I had received a calling to do this. Um, I didn't know what this was, but I knew what it felt like. I knew it was a calling, like the church had always talked about a calling. And I didn't know anyone doing this uh, in my life at the time. And so part of the using was running from that. Part of the using was about trying to distance myself from the voice of Sims. Like, I just can't deal with this. This is too much. And I don't want to, I don't want to go down and commit myself to going um, down some spiritual path because I really felt like um, I was going to go even further out 
as like the crazy person that no one would want to be around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I just tried to run from it. Um, and, and so the last two years, um, of, which was the first two years in San Diego were kind of my last two years of, um, of drug use, which led me into recovery, um, which was magical in the first place because I got to, to San Diego and this whole like deja vu that lasted for well over an hour, probably close to two hours. And I knew that I was there for a reason. Mm-hmm. I knew I, I, I knew the choice that was given to me to stay. And I remember the entire dialogue, different places we had gone to. And I remember getting on a bus and leaving downtown and going, oh, well, you know, it was, a, it was fun while it lasted. It was just a pipe dream. I can't really do this. And the vision ended there. Mm. So I knew, I don't know how to explain this, but clearly I had this option like a year ago was the only way I could contextualize it. I made the wrong choice then, and somehow I'm back to make the choice again. Which often happens. And, and so <laughs> I was like, lives. I have to say yes. I made the wrong choice before, so there's something here for me. Mm. Uh, and part of that, uh, I'm convinced, was recovery. I would never have known that I needed to go there, and it provided tools. Um, the 12 steps are amazing tools to have, uh, it's a learned experience to bring about a spiritual uh, awakening. Mm. And uh, in early recovery, I met Dominic. Um, he was a friend of a friend. Um, I was still a bit of a hot mess then. Um, he saw something um, in me that he told me about later, but um, I was still a bit of a hot mess. Uh, but I kept seeing him. He was up in the Bay Area at the time and would come down to San Diego um, to teach a group there. Um, but it was relatively infrequent. Um, but every time he was in town... I would run into him, um, and and he finally had moved down, and by this point, I'd gotten about two years in recovery, and I kept asking um, at, for about a year um, if he would take me on as a student, and he kept saying no, and one day he was shopping at Whole Foods, and I, was, I worked grocery there, and he was going to take a bus home, which was going to be a, a pretty lengthy uh, ride and I was getting off soon, so I was like, I'll, I'll just give you a ride. And so I took, gave him a ride home, and we t- chatted for a few hours. Um, and he still said no, <laughs> <laughs> but we got to know each other a little bit more. I got to talk to him about the work that I had been doing up to that point. Um, I had already uh, been developing and fostering a relationship with my mother goddess Inanna at that point. Um, and she had come to me back in 92, and this was now 98. Um, and ironically, his um, uh, initiator, uh, Valerie Voigt, um, is a big um, priestess uh, of Inanna in the Temple of Damuzi. And for those who don't know, Inanna is a... Sumerian, Sumerian goddess. goddess. Um, the Queen of Heaven and Earth uh, is her of her title and i and as far as i understand a lot of the images of mary later in catholicism were directly borrowed from her right uh images of her and demuzi um yeah (laughs) Yeah, the 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 madonna and child were taken from the depictions of inanna and demuzi and actually the virgin mary is seen as um current day downline from the cult of inanna it was a very popular cult very interesting and it's gone kind of unbroken as it passed through cultures um, so he eventually broke down, um, and, and said yes. I think it was a, um, a, a Samhain, um, 
in, in 90s. We started studying, um, had my first fairy ritual was a Samhain ritual, which is really intense. Um, that didn't scare me away. Um, so I passed that, I guess. Um, and everybody else that had started with me, because there was a small group of us, they all tapped out very early on and I stayed with it. Um, so for a lot of people here that are listening are not going to, I mean, they know a tiny bit about fairy from what I've said about it, but can you describe a tiny bit of what fairy training is like before you're, because there's a period of time where you're being trained before you're actually initiated and there's a lot that goes into that. So could you describe what that was kind of like in, in brief? If, if sure. <laughs> so it's the Anderson Ferry Tradition, spelled F-E-R-I, um, founded by, um, well, noted to, to be founded by Victor and Cora Anderson. Um, and training for fairy, uh, first, there there's only one initiation. So um, it's a priest path. It's a warrior tradition. And so one initiation initiated into uh, priest. And priest, we don't see as gendered. It's just, it's title. Um, when you step on the path to study, initiations never guarantee. And I would meet with Dominic once a week. And the, um, the expectation there was that I met with him once a week for class. My responsibility was to show up uh, for whatever it was that he was teaching and to show up indefinitely. There, there was no length of time provided. Um, if I was hung up on how long it was going to take, then I probably wasn't right for the tradition. Sounds um, very zen. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, show up for the master and, and yeah. learn whatever he's going to teach. And, and they... Don't expect any results. <laughs> right, right. Um, and the simplest way to describe the training is it's the, the teacher has to work with the student to bring up their energetic harmonics for lack of a better term up to a resonance uh, in which they could be prepared for receiving initiation uh, without initiation blowing their mind early on they used to just initiate they would remove someone from society and initiate them which was kind of like going on a acid trip for a year as they would then piece <laughs> them back together like a shamanic um, death sort of exactly and then the then the the, um, the group, the coven the, that was um, doing the teaching, would then piece the person back together, raising them up in the tradition. And we can't do that in modern times, so they decided to um, task Victor with um, learning or developing a method to teach um people into the path. So it's sort of backwards where you go through a lot of self like a, a lot of um, what am I trying to say sort of like self-reflection a lot of breaking down of things a lot of recollecting pieces of yourself you might have rejected like there's a lot of inner work that happens um, it's all I would say it's all inner work um, I kind of refer to it as, as kind of going to your um, to your internal crossroads mm. um, and if you think of the crossroads are life death luck and love so all the necessary things for life your internal crossroads though are all those things sort of teetering between self um the ego self the authentic self um through um the mystic and and madness mm. um i like that 
and and finding and, and being able to navigate the magic standing in the crossroads of that place. Uh, and so a lot of work around how to um, shed the layers of the false self. Uh, my sponsor was Zen Buddhist. My sponsor in recovery was Zen Buddhist. So I, that, that came into my foundation of, of fairy um, quite heavily. So I, I pulled a lot of that language um, mm. and, and used a lot of that to supplement my, my study and practice of fairy um, to contextualize some things. Um, and certainly to contextualize my teaching of it uh, and, and be able to, to communicate it. Um, but a lot of uh, digging through and sorting through how you've been doing life, who's been in the driver's seat, and how to get in right relationship with self so that yourself in alignment with yourself um, is uh, working in a co-creative relationship with all that is um, and, and that can be your God self, because you know, uh, fairy is very much uh, a recognition of thou art God. Um, mm. But bringing yeah. your your God self down upon yourself to be the driver that's driving the vehicle that's you. Right. So it's not your programming. It's not your parents that are driving. It's not your culture that's driving. Right. It's you that's driving. Right. What and is that? What is that you though? That's that's that's. The big, the big mystery. Yeah. Right. Well, th that part of you that no matter what is always going to do what's right for you. Which sifts through an awful lot of um, fear. <laughs> um, an awful lot of baggage around um, you know, making mistakes. And that, you know, given the opportunity, I won't make the right choices. Um, but raising yourself up to know that there is a divine quality of self. That if we get out of our own way, we'll always make the right choices for self. And we'll always do the, what's the, the right thing to do. In this case, not really using right in the context of mm -hmm. right and wrong, but right as in the context of what is, what's in alignment, alignment with, with Yeah, what's yeah. in alignment with self. Right. It's a very Taoist perspective, yeah. almost. And it uh, goes to show why so many of your your cohorts dropped out, because facing yourself... <laughs> like, this yeah. is, like, really dumb, but... I know, it's not really dumb, but I love The NeverEnding Story. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And that scene That's really dumb. Where, You're dumb. I know, I'm an idiot. <laughs> but that scene where Atreyu is going through those tests where he has to get to the Southern Oracle, and he has to look mm -hmm. in the mirror to face oh, his I true love self. It. Right. I love it. And that people just run screaming from that challenge. Right. And that is very much, to me, fairy training in a nutshell. Oh, right. right. <laughs> well, that's, that's Zen training, yeah. too. That's yeah. the same thing. Right. You have to face yourself in silence. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which is terrifying. Which as is well. like, uh, that's the oh true. God. That's yeah. the, the true devil. I, I think is is the ego self. Oh, the yeah. the, the okay. tempter of, of Jesus in the desert, tempting him with bread and all these and you know riches and, and uh, yeah. blah blah. Um, I believe it was his ego self. Absolutely, mm, that's beautiful. Uh, I love that. And and so yeah, I think um, it it is to see oneself fully, because with that is. Um, a heightened degree of responsibility over your actions and choices. You can't blame anybody after that. You can't that. blame anyone. And if I if I align with an understanding that a part of me will always choose what is in alignment with self, then when I make choices that are out of alignment with self, then I need to look at who made that choice. Mm. Where was I? What was motivating me? 
to make that choice. I drive home to my students, know your motive, know your motive, know your motive. If you know your motive and you're honest with yourself what your motive is, you can do whatever you want. Hmm. Because with knowing and accepting your motive is assumed responsibility over one's actions. That's really... That's really, and, and have say, no judgment over what your motives right, are. Right, right, I'm right. Saying be aware of your intentions. Right, yeah. right. It's like, you know, if emotions are coming up and I don't feel like feeling right now and I want to act out on some, with some ice cream or sexually act out or whatever, knowing that, you know, I don't want to feel this right now. You just came up and I ain't got the time for you. And so I'm going to act out so that I don't have to feel. My motive is I don't feel like feeling, but I'm going to have to come back to this later, but I will yeah. do so on my time. Not when it just shows up, so that mm. I can come back to it consciously, and by doing it on my time doesn't mean like you know ten years later. It means I don't feel like feeling it right now. Maybe later today or tomorrow, um, I'm gonna. I know that this has come up, and I'm gonna have to address it. I'm gonna have to face it, but I'm gonna find my strength first. Yeah. Rather than it sneaking in when like when I'm not like quite that. ready and annihilating you and annihilating mm. me, and then it just tears me apart, and and so. The esteemable action, um, it, it, you know, is to to step into it consciously, rather than it just like, you know, knocks your feet out from under. I'm like, fine, fuck you. I'm not gonna deal with you right now. But ice cream looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> so you trained with Dominic, mm-hmm. and that that obviously carried you through initiation. So, what would you say your life? I know this is a huge question, but Huge questions are good. Huge questions are good. And people might hear initiation and they're just thinking, oh, this is like a secret fraternity and now you're allowed in. But for people who practice mystical mystery traditions of some variety, an initiation is really more than that. So what would you say that initiation changed in you? In it, I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> <laughs> so by, by this... By that time, by the time I came up to um, for initiation, um, was roughly about five years after training because I I, got, I was initiated in two thousand three, and by that point I had met Virgil, um, who's my my partner, um, and I believed the relationship to be healthy, um, different than my past relationships, and done a lot of work around that to be able to. Um, create a relationship that I believed to be healthy. And I knew that there's, um, it's a common story in fairy initiations that people's lives go to shit either just before or right after initiation. Everything crumbles. So my mom had passed away just before my initiation. We actually had to reschedule um, because <laughs> initiation empowers everything. Mm. And so it would have, that would have included the grief. Um, and so I negotiated that Virgil stays. I, I believed my relationship to be healthy. So I was like, Virgil stays. But I knew if I was going to stake a claim on something and, and be immovable on that one thing that I then needed to be, um, willing to let go of everything. Well, I had done that before my mom had passed because we were already scheduling the initiation. So I was like, you know, okay, you can... Take everything else, but Virgil stays. And then my mom died. Mm. I didn't think that that was on the list of everything. Um, yeah, that's intense. And, uh, and so that was something that had to be taken uh, a look at. Um, clearly, I was never going to be initiated while my mom was alive. 
because that's not what happened. Um, and, and so that was huge for me to, to have to address and, um, and, and, and take ownership of. Um, that, um, that was what was needed for me to get that release, actually, um, to have the space in order for initiation to happen. I no longer had in the back of my head um, disappointing my mother. Mm. Um, that was now released. Um, and everything, I, I really didn't know who I was. I went to CODA meetings. Um, my true addiction was people and codependency. Uh, I didn't know who I was. I was a chameleon, so I was whatever anybody else needed me to be. Mm. Um, and so I really found myself. Um, initiation um, kind of launched that forward in ways that I never anticipated. Um, changing everything about my life. Um, Dominic, uh, I, I got him to attend a relationship and empowerment retreat um, that I had written the curriculum for in my, my previous job and um, was doing a lot of the, the workshops and things. And he sat in the front while I was giving a workshop and he just was crying. Mm -hmm. And he told me afterwards, he's like, I'm so proud of you. The person that I knew that came into to my home to study fairy compared to the person that was standing up there and, and presenting is like night and day. Wow. Like, I, I was afraid of my own shadow when I first started with him. I'm so um, afraid of my shadow. <laughs> Shadows are Who scary. Who my shadow? It's yeah. on you. That means that there's going to be three more months of winter. Exactly. <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah, like, really, every, I, I spent time getting a bachelor's degree in human services with special emphasis on counseling, mm. and now I, I work a, as... Um, a spiritual counselor and professional witch, or I, I never know what to call it. Um, I'm a professional witch. <laughs> and I never, that I, I never intended. Like, I, I didn't know that I would be teaching. I didn't know um, that I would be in Brookings um, doing a podcast. I know. Because we're doing a workshop. Like, I mean, who knew what was going to happen with my life and the people that would be in my life? And so when I received that calling, back in like 92 sitting on the edge of my bed um in a very abusive relationship and part of studying magic after i started learning a few things i'm like oh well, i'm gonna clean up this relationship by doing magic on, on <laughs> the things that are influencing you know the issues and uh, what i learned was uh how to empower myself that's and, awesome and how to empower myself to to leave it and that's the biggest trick, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so when I received that calling to do this, um, I couldn't imagine that people like uh, all y'all exist. Mm. And, and that I could talk about this in a way where people were interested and not looking at me like I'm some sort of freak. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> As are we, obviously. But I thought that I would be very, very alone and very isolated. That it would just be that society would reject me. Mm. Um, and um, I've I've found healthy, loving relationships. I found a healthy, loving relationship with self, um, a, a relationship to compassion. 
um, in, in ways that I never thought imaginable. Um, a relationship with Jesus mm. as, as a spirit that I can access and see the way the church always said, but that mechanism didn't open that doorway for me. That's for uh, another this episode. Did. Yeah. We'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, if you want to be on again, we would love to delve a little bit fuller Deeper into some into of that. that. Yeah. I, I do too. I agree too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually super into Jesus. I have this book. It's called The Gospel According to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's, it's all the sayings of Jesus or every... Uh, saying that's attributed to Jesus. Right. All the stuff in red. Right. <laughs> Not just in the Bible, but in the, um, in the Gnostic Gospels as right. well. Like, I mean, in oh, the Apocryphal texts and then the, yeah. So, so it's got like every, the compilation of everything. And it's funny because there's a lot of contradictions in there, but there's a lot of really just like seriously golden stuff that I'm like, yeah. like, I, Buddha couldn't have even said it any better. Like, it's that good. Well, they've um, finally come forward with the scrolls that document his presence uh, in um, India. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they called uh, him in... I remember there was... Yes, there. they talk about a person who was in India and it was the same time that that gap mm-hmm. in the Bible or mm-hmm. Jesus's life is mm-hmm. not documented. I don't know much and about I'm, that. I'm trying to remember the name they gave him. Sort of an I. Isa. Yes, Isa. Thank mm-hmm. you. That was it. Isa. Yes. Yeah, Jesus was never his name. Isa. Yeah. Wow. Yeshua ben Joseph or Yeshua ben Maria. Mm. Um or and Isa was his Isa was um, his name and yeah. he was like a yogi essentially yeah yeah he went and yeah. studied he went and studied um, yoga uh, yeah. buddhism and, and yoga that he makes went, more sense than anything yeah there, he studied buddhism he studied yeah. buddhism um there are said to be um scrolls in tibet um the dalai lama has has confirmed there are the, but he can't go back in because of china he can't mm-hmm. go back in and pull the scrolls out so everything's locked down um but they um have orally it's stated that no we have these scrolls documenting his presence in Tibet and studying Buddhism. I'm convinced that this Jesus character went to India and Asia studied Buddhism. This Jesus character <laughs> went, yeah. went back went back to Israel and, and preached <laughs> preached the Buddhist and, right, message blew everybody's mind. It was totally like turned into something else. Right. Because uh, it was it was contrary to um, well, they had to make sense Roman of it in rule. their. They had to make sense <laughs> of it in the context of their own, right? Like because honestly, approaching Buddhism from a Christian perspective, it's like it's really hard to make because it's so polar opposite. Right. In Christianity, we're taught to think of our natural selves as evil and sinful. Right. In Buddhism, we're taught to think of our natural selves as the only correct way. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's like really just completely different. It's very, very compatible with fairy too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there, there's something to be said about the 
the stream of wisdom that runs through all things. Um, and that stream of wisdom is um, essentially is passing along the same wisdoms and that wisdoms get uh, contextualized within the cultures that are accessing it. Um, and they'll be, it'll be garbed in, in the regalia of the culture. It'll be um, built in the structures uh, of, of their architecture um, and it will carry the, the flavors and the stories and the colors and textures um, of their terrain and, and their, their stories and their lifestyles. Mm. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's the same stream of wisdom that flows through all things. We get caught up in um, the colors, the textures, mm -hmm. and the architecture, the uh, and, and miss <laughs> the wisdom. And, and I think that was probably the teachings of mystics throughout the history of humanity and still today is that you can tell a story and the mystery's hidden in the story and if you get caught up in, in the details, then you missed it and well, you weren't meant to hear those anyway. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then if you, if you, you know, link in and listen to what's being uh, passed, then you can get it. It's like the, the mysteries are whispered on the wind. They're not shouted through a megaphone. Mm. Ooh, I like, I like that. that. So it's, we've, we've probably gone pretty far into our episode. Right. Like, but, and I don't want to have to keep, because we could talk all night. And all right. the longest, the longest thing ever. That was just one bottle of. I know. We're oh. like, I know we're going to have to like do another one of these. Yeah, we so, are. So just to close, since I know you, I know you do much more than just fairy and what we talked about, mm -hmm. but, and this isn't one last big question. I think, if you're okay with that, Tim. If what? If you're okay with one last big question. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Is, so, a lot of people hear the word witchcraft, which covers a big umbrella of a mm -hmm. lot of different traditions, and there's a lot of people telling us what it is and what it's supposed to be. So what do you think is the most valuable thing that modern witchcraft has is bringing into the world? Hmm. And that's again. That's like a, not a, not a. That's a huge question. But in your opinion, what what is why why does this world need it? Well, to quote Orion Foxwood, when the world need witches needs witches, the witches arrive. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that would be the the answer. Um, do I think that all of modern neo paganism um, represents the arrival each and every one of the Maybe, maybe not. Um, I view witch as a vocation, not a religion. Um, oh. A vocation that um, historically involved relationship with other, other being um, a spirit being um, and an animal Familiar. being. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it was both the animal kingdom and the unseen world, mm -hmm. and often even the, the plant world as well. And it required these, these relationships between the worlds, and it was the witch that um, was ruled by no one, was untamable, that connected to the forces of all of life in the seen and unseen worlds, and was seen as a wild force that could not be tested. Mm. And, and so what do we bring to the world? I think we bring forward that, that power. Witches are not to be messed with. They bring a power that is not to be tested. Because when you connect to the forces of all that is, 
in the seen and unseen worlds and align with the balance uh, of the natural world, both seen and unseen worlds. The divine flow of energy flowing up from the underworld and, and flowing down from the stellar world. When you stand and mediate in that space into the physical world, nothing can stand in the face of that power. Mm. And the power doesn't come from the witch, it comes through the witch. Mm. So would you say then that it's the calling of a witch to be almost like an intermediary for, for, for others and for the world with those powers? Yes, uh, an intermediary, a bridge of those powers. Yeah. Not to um, have attachment to what those powers do. Mm. And that's a big distinction. Not to that you're not con you're not the one telling, con making the power, choosing for the power what right. it's here to do. You're just a conduit in a way. If an earthquake needs to happen, in order to bring balance back to those plates that are in conflict with one another, and if that happens and, and causes maybe the death of, of thousands of people, we view that as being very negative. But the earth is is finding its, its um, place of comfort in those two plates as they were um, stuck in conflict. And then that conflict, at least for a time being, um, writes itself and finds a place of comfort for a while. And, and I think that um, illustrates kind of um, the responsibility in the hand of the witch mm. is to not... Um, Function. Balanced as all things should be. Right, not function within <laughs> the ethics and morals uh, of sort of the, the human kind of um, view of things. I mean, the predator must eat the, the prey. That's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's that's perspective. A, that's, a, that's another uh, a Buddhist thing, yeah. too. It's like we look at the, the, we look at the lion hunting the gazelle and our heart goes out to the gazelle. But while we're while we're in pain for the gazelle, we're forgetting that the lion has to do this to survive. Exactly, and we forget yeah. the lion. Right, right. And so it's, yeah. there is a balance to nature. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so the witch has to mediate that energy, hmm. uh, and to do so without attachment to how that needs to then play out, in order for the the natural state of healing, the way the natural world heals, is the restoration of balance. Hmm. And I think our natural world has been out of balance, oh, put out of balance for a balance. very long time. And it must be cleansed with fire. <laughs> <laughs> Which fire, too? Candles. <laughs> well, thank you, Tommy. That was a beautiful, uh, as always, eloquent and well-stated. And uh, I think thank I'm you. satisfied. What do you want to say, Tim? Uh, no, I think that's a, that, was a, that was all great. I think this has been an amazing episode, and we'd love to have you back again. We are going to have to end it, because it's already been an hour and 15 minutes. So, <laughs> so we do have to end the episode, but to, wow. To be continued. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to come back. Yes, anytime. Yeah. You're welcome anytime. That was great. We we were so glad that you were on. We loved it. It was amazing. Um, we still don't have then, a closing. I know we. I. I'm. It's my glass. Happened. Our glasses are empty. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go cheat. Okay. We, well, we gotta have something in our. Oh God. Oh. God. <laughs> oh. That was intense. What is that? Our friend just opened a bottle that almost killed everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that me? What is this? Both of them bolted. I had Eloise right here, 
Everybody's like very special, alarmed. Is what is this? Yeah, what is this? Magical mead. Oh, we're, this is we're mead? drinking magical mead. Explosive mead. Okay, we're gonna cheers this. Cheers. Prost. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty oh, that's damn good. Yummy. It's magical, all right. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I'm. <laughs> 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 Until next time. Until next time. Thank you. And Namaste. good night. <laughs>